Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. How are you? Um, well, I'm all right. Mm-hmm. Well, I just tested positive. Uh, Have we not mentioned that? Well, it's, you, know, you are positive. I You've always been a positive person, though, I've found. I'm a great believer in the power of positive <laughs> thought and diagnoses. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, luckily, Mike Campbell, our guest today, is not sitting next to you. And has no, got he's a long concerns. way away, so I don't need to wear a mask. Uh, he's probably so. talking from Los Angeles or somewhere. I expect so. And what an amazing, amazing list of stuff this guy has done. Yeah. From, you know. Well, obviously, Tom Petty and all of, uh, you know, he's been Tom Petty's right-hand man, not just with the Heartbreakers, but all his solo stuff. All his solo stuff. Yeah, it's really sweet. It's one of those things where Tom couldn't move without him. He tried a couple of times, but he's like that old sofa that you just can't put yeah. in the attic. And he co-wrote a lot of the big hits like Refugee, but also he co-wrote yes. one of my favourite all-time songs. And I, I think it's yours too, right? It is. It's one of my favourite all-time songs. Also one of the great early 80s videos yeah. as well. Yeah, Don Henley's Boys of Summer. He co-wrote yeah. that song, which I'm sure we'll be asking about. He's co-written songs with Stevie Nicks and played with Stevie Nicks, produced Stevie Nicks. What else has he done? Other artists. Think Jeff Lynne he's worked with. I mean, lots with Jeff Lynne, lots with Roy Orbison. Yeah, no, he he produced four songs on Roy Orbison's track. And then, of course, there's the, the Dirty Knobs, his other band. Yeah. And they've just done an album with Ian Hunter on it. I know, I know. There's so much to talk about. Yeah, he's clearly such an Anglophile as well. well that's right. So hopefully he'll be nice to us. So much to talk about, including yeah. your positivity, I would have thought. <laughs> Welcome to The Rock on Tears. Yeah. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? 
I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, to Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters Podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Yay, Mike! Hey, there you are. I see you now. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Oh. I, pr- I presume that's Los Angeles if you're saying good yes, morning. Yes, it is. Who am I speaking to? You're speaking to Guy Pratt. I'm a musician and Gary Kemp, who's another musician. Okay. Why are you, Mike? I'm good. How are you? I guess you're, you're doing a string of interviews, are you, at the moment? I am. I'm doing one with you right now. You, you <laughs> must be rehearsing. You go on the road in a week, don't you? We have two more days of rehearsal. Yeah. And uh, then we're off. Can't wait. Look, the album sounds fantastic. Guy and Brilliant. I were both yeah, freaking out that one of our old childhood heroes, Ian Hunter, is on the record. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It was a thrill to get him. Is that someone that you know, Mike? Is it, do you have a long-running thing with him? No, I don't. I might have met him a long time ago for a split second, but no, um, I got a call to the office that he wanted some guitar overdubs on a record he was doing. And he sent me the track, and I overdubbed, sent it back. I did two of them, and he really liked them, so I cheekily asked him if he would sing on our record, and he said, sure. So on a dirty job, he yeah. the second verse and some harmonies and played some piano. It was a thrill. He did a great job. I never know if he's going to do that American accent of his or just do the old Cockney, all the young dudes vibe. It was Cockney. I heard was very cocky, but really good. We've been trying to get Ian on the show, but I know he's he's in his 80s now, isn't he? I don't know. He's got to be older than me, which says a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so how did all this come together with the Dirty Knobs? I know you do had an album out like two years ago now, but uh, was this, this something that really happened after Tom died? No, it started happening about a decade before Tom died. I met the guys and it became a, project I would do in between tours when I was home and it was a chance for me to to write songs and we played some bars and recorded a little bit always just been for fun really in the back of my mind I always thought maybe someday uh, I could uh, concentrate on that band because I love the band and now I have the time so it's uh, it's all knobs all the time <laughs> I mean it's looking back on your CV you certainly keep yourself so busy it's like you can't stand still the amount of collaborations you do is insane well when you love music as much as i do you just want to keep doing it i guess mm-hmm. but i guess people love you too so they're coming to you a lot of the time i mean your phone's ringing and asking you to do solos or whatever it might be and what about the singing is that something that you always you wanted to do and that you you know that wasn't allowed for you in the heartbreakers well it wasn't that it wasn't allowed i didn't have the confidence to want to do it with the heartbreakers because i had such a great uh, leader in tom and I was really comfortable in my role as, quote unquote, co-captain in the Heartbreakers. And uh, it never occurred to me to sing because uh, he was so good. But then as the years went on, I kept uh, making up uh, demos. You know, he had more than he could deal with. So I started singing them myself and writing my own words just to amuse myself and see what they might sound like. And I found that I enjoyed it quite a bit. And then when I got the knobs together, I was able to go out and um, front that band and do some singing, if you want to call it that. And uh, You can call it that. <laughs> yeah, I got my confidence doing it that way. So it was a slow process, but I never had this big ambition to be a singer, but I kind of backed into it. You know, I think of myself more as a stylist, as Roy Oberson would say. 
he told me once uh, about the Wilburys. He, they were in the other room. He goes, those guys, they're not really singers. I'm a singer. They're stylists. <laughs> <laughs> God bless. And he was right, you know. And I love getting inside the personality of the, of the character in the song. I'm no Caruso, but I can get the point across. Yeah, no, I think that was what's obvious when you listen to the album. They're American stories, aren't they, of, uh, of working class life? Yeah, they're stories and they're characters um, that just uh, some of them, uh, some reality creeps through, but they're mostly just been fictional characters in this little movie called The Song. And I love fleshing them out, you know, starting out with a germ and then seeing what's going to happen to them by the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and you, can, can you see anything that inspired you from, that you learnt from Tom and his writing style? Is there stuff that you've, you feel you picked up? Yeah, I'm sure, I hope, I'm sure I picked up quite a bit from just rubbing shoulders with him all those years. You know, I taught him some guitar and he taught me some uh, writing skills, but yeah, I mean, he's a great writer. You know, he's really good with lyrics and watching him put his songs together and craft the verses and choruses. You know, I picked up a lot of those uh, tools along the way. Yeah, also because Tom basically didn't move without you, did he, for so long? Even when he would sort of go off to do a solo thing, you'd always be there with him. Yeah, we had a bond, you know, and we trusted yeah. each other. And uh, I think that he respected me enough to want me there, even when it was a solo record. And uh, I always uh, appreciated that with him. And um, it was just a thing we had together that, you know, magic happened when we played together or wrote together. Yeah, talking about producing, though, that this album, you've got uh, George Draculis. Now, I'm interested in George because... He comes up a lot. He comes yeah. up a lot. And I watched the Wildflowers uh, making of documentary, yeah. which was which is beautiful. I especially love all the stuff with you and Rick chatting, but mm. uh, Rick Rubin. Yeah. But George is there. And I texted Guy, who I know I was watching it. I said, uh, I think he might be their magic Alex. <laughs> you know? He is. It's funny. When I first met George, he and Rick had come out from New York. They had that Def Jam label or whatever. And they came to L.A. Tom and I went over to visit Rick at his house one day. And George was living in a closet <laughs> at the house, literally <laughs> a closet. He had a guitar amplifier and a pillow. And I thought, this is a guy, you know, cut from my cloth. And then we <laughs> hang around with him and George is just one of those special people that puts people at ease and makes the proceedings fun but he's also really smart with picking songs and uh, arranging the performance and getting the best out of everybody he's a joy to work with because like on that album he didn't actually have any title or anything did he it's like he said he just kept turning up <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah he just kept showing up uh I guess. <laughs> but what is it? Go ahead, just explain what it is that you need George in the room. Is he a musician? Not much of me. He plays the ocarina. But he's essential to my process. I'll tell you why. Because I do write a lot. I don't really always write in one particular genre. I just write all kinds of songs, you know. And I had a bunch of different types of songs. And he came in and he helped me weed through the stuff that wasn't right for the Dirty Knobs. And pair it down. Well, these are really good for the band. These other songs, maybe you could do in a different format someday or with a different group. But he helped me kind of uh, pick the right songs that went together as a package for the band. And uh, it was really uh, helpful because I, I was a little overwhelmed. You know, I think when people produce themselves, you can disappear up your you know what if you don't have someone there to kind of say yes or no here and there, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to jump around too much, but 
because you're talking about like writing and producing yourself. I was amazed to discover that because you co-wrote one of Gary and my absolute favorite songs of all time, Boys of Summer, but that you but but that you had Roger Lynn in the back room or something and you'd like were working on like the first Lynn drum which, which it seems really odd seeing you at the absolute forefront of kind of electronic music making. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. you suddenly become craft work. <laughs> which I've gone past now. But uh, it's <laughs> yeah. an interesting story because he was a guitar player who played with uh, Leon Russell. And back in the early days, we were hanging around at Leon Russell's house occasionally. And Roger was always in the back room like a mad scientist. And we said, what's he doing back there? And uh, Leon said, oh, he's building a drum machine. And we thought, why? That's a waste of time. But sure enough, he came up with this brilliant tool called the Lindrum. And uh, I got one of the first ones and was diddling around on it. You know, you can make your own drum beats by typing your fingers. Oh, it was a nightmare. It, might, it took forever. <laughs> I used that to uh, write The Boys of Summer. I got a beat on there and then played some stuff along with that. And it led me into that song, yeah. Oh, come on. You can't just cut it short like that, Mike. I mean, <laughs> how did that develop? Now we're in that talking about Boys of Summer and Don Henley. And how did it develop? Did you have all of the chord structure? Yeah, it's definitely out? worth lighting a pipe for. Definitely worth yeah. lighting a pipe for. Loving I, the pipe. Oh, it's, it's tobacco. It's, it's tobacco. It's not okay. But uh, it's my last vice. I've given up all the other stuff. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you quickly. Uh, it's, you know, it's a songwriting experience that I had. Uh, I had the Lindrum and I was basically playing around with it. And I got all those little tick, 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 you know, little bits. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was making a beat. And then I happened to have a synthesizer there in my room that day. I had the beat. I was just going da, 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 along with that and came up with the chords on the keyboard. And then on my TAC four track, you know, I put the drums on one track and the keyboard on another and put a few guitars on it. And threw the chords together, like I always do when I write, you know, I just kind of put something together that I thought, you know, had a, a feel and an arc to it. And I was just really lucky with that one. You know, Don heard it and immediately, you know, got a song in his head. Did you write it for Tom initially? Did you think it was for Well, him? everything I write is basically for me. But of course, with Tom, um, I would always show him everything I did. And I showed him that song, him and Jimmy Ivey during uh, whatever record we were working on, Southern Accents. And uh, I had a demo and I, sh I played it for them and they kind of liked it. But in Tom's defense, at the time I played it for him, I had a different chorus chord. I went to a minor chord in the chorus. Mm. And as the summer uh, was finished, it goes to a major chord in the chorus, yeah. which lifts it up. That yeah, that, that would have been Boys of Winter. <laughs> <laughs> as he didn't really hear it the way Don heard it yeah, or he may have kept it, but it really wasn't in the flow of the thing we were doing at the time. And so Iavine told me that Don was looking for some music. I figured, well, that's been overlooked. I'll send this to him. And, uh, you know, I'm just, um, I'm always seem to be in the right place at the right time. You know, I don't know how. But I was watching you talk about it on your Instagram site and you were in the room, weren't you, when you played it to Don? Yeah. I'd never met him before. And oh, wow. You don't, oh, so it's not like you knew him. Or no, no, no. Jimmy Ivey on uh, oh. call. And I went to his house in L.A., up in the mountains, and he had this big breakfast table. He sat at one end like this, with his arms crossed and his head down. And he had a little cassette player, and I gave him my cassette. And he didn't move. He didn't tap his foot. He didn't nod his head or anything. I thought he hated it. 
I'm sitting at the other end of the table just thinking, well, as soon as this is over, I'll get out of here, you know. Wow. It sounds like a meeting between Macron and Putin, doesn't it, really? <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know which is which. Macron. Go for Macron. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Don. <laughs> he, he kind of went, yeah, that's, you know, I'll work on that. And I thought, yeah, right. Okay. So I'm, I drove home. And then he called me and he said, I've written the best song I've written in 10 years to that track and I want to make a record out of it. And I guess he took the cassette out in his car and he saw a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac and he wrote the words listening to the cassette. And um, yeah, there's more to the story, but that's, that's the rough idea how it happened. You, you know what? I think, you know, we all love what Don added to that and literally oh, yeah. what he added to it. But the music that you gave him, I think, you know, as a songwriter myself, it led him into the wistful nostalgia that the lyrics were about. I, th I feel that was already, that's in the music. He just drew out what you were already making. You're right. You're right. There's a, and it's, you know, I'm not going to take full credit for it. It's just a muse, you know, it was a, it was a day where I just had those chords, struck a chord in me and uh, I put the guitar on and it all seemed to take on this, this shape of a mood, you know, like a wistful mood. But then with the redemption in the chorus where it goes major key, which really made a difference. And uh, I do think the music is really good on that one. It, it kind of stands on its own as an instrumental in a way. And I guess when Don heard it, he, he could feel that and it inspired him, you know, to come up with what he came up with. So it's a give and take. Thing. Is that like your original, that's your original Lin programming on it, isn't it? It's all the lots of hand claps. And oh, it's all on the Lin drum, but yeah. Yeah, because the whole thing, especially then with that really super high-end video and everything, it was a real template for kind of 80s music. Well, I don't know about that, but I, I know it sounds great on the radio. When I hear it, I'm real proud of it. Yeah. yeah. Is it the biggest song you ever wrote, Mike? Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, what do you mean by biggest? The most played, I would have thought. You know, Financially? Uh, well. <laughs> that's one of them. It's right up there. I mean, Refugee, Running Down a Dream, Here Comes My Girl, Woman in Love. Yeah. You got lucky. I mean, I've got a lot of songs yeah, yeah. that that still get played and that I'm really proud of that I think were equally as good as Boys of Summer. But each song is like its own little entity. You know, it has its own little feel and, and mood, spirituality. Uh, but Boys of Summer, it's right up there, yeah. We should go back to your, yeah. your, your inspirations <laughs> as a stop. Because what Guy and I were talking about earlier was the first time we remember seeing you guys would have been on Top of the Pops. We kind of saw you as a new wave band from America in the same sort of Elvis Costello feel. You got in at the right time. You were totally seen as part of the new wave and you were you know, loved by the British music press, which was, you know, tricky at that point. Yeah, it was lucky for us. And we found you first. <laughs> you did. You did. Absolutely. I give you credit for that. And thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think that inspiration was? You know, labels, you know, punk, new wave, whatever. At the time, the new wave phrase was going around. And we're a rock and roll band. You know, we're not really a new wave. Yeah. But because we were around at that time, we got kind of got lumped in with that group. Well, it's because you were authentic. It's because you had an authentic, real thing and short songs. Yeah. But stylistically, I mean, when I think of new wave, I think of keyboards and echo and reverb. And we're not that. We're like a Bo Diddley band. <laughs> I think one of the reasons that it feels like that is because there was obviously a connection. It's this kind of paradox, irony, really, that British music, a 60s blues, beat blues, 
was really very, obviously came from America, but it had a very British sound. And you seem to be plugged into that British sound. I would assume that you and Tom were both kind of Anglophiles musically, although there's a lot of the birds in there as well. Isn't there? You know, you hit on a, a very important point in, in my life and Tom's life. The era that we grew up in was so amazing. You know, it was, and I didn't know at the time that that was just a special little renaissance moment. I thought that's the way it was always going to be. But things have changed a lot since the 60s. And Tom and I grew up in Florida, and there was a lot of blues bands. Mm -hmm. We didn't want to do that. We were influenced by the Beatles, the animals, the zombies, the yardbirds, the stones. We were turned on by that stuff, which was also a lot of it turned on by the old blues American. Mm -hmm. So it kind of came full circle. But we always resisted and weren't drawn into the American blues Leonard Skinner type thing. We were more enamored with the British bands. In fact, I wish I could have lived in, in London in the 60s. I have a fantasy. I mean, there's, you know, there's two places. There's like the California Dream was another thing. It was beautiful. Yeah. But then there was that English, you know, King's Road. Uh, the, 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 Bag of the, Nails. All those great bands. Great, great band. The Kinks. All those great guitar players. And so yeah. that's where... That's where I draw from. That's who I am. That's what inspired me. And maybe that comes out in the way I play. I don't know. It probably does. That's the stuff I love. We had Shell Talmy on the show here a couple of months ago. Ah, oh, the producer. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and, you know, what he invented, that raw sound of the kinks. You really got me. So good. The drum sound and stuff he got on the kinks and the who. I think he used some stuff with the who as well. Yeah, he did the first few who, who records. Which actually, although Pete said it, it's uh, although Glenn Johns is worth bearing on, was his engineer. I know so. Glenn. Yeah, right, right. He was part of it. Yeah, yeah. When you met Tom, was it a uh, one of those kind of? Well, you write the songs. I've got the riffs. We're Mick and Keith. We kind, I kind of. Well, not even that really, because obviously Tom is a, a much more of a solo writer. Did you see yourself as two pieces that could easily fit together? You know, we didn't really think about it. Uh, we just became friends. You know, we liked the same things and we liked playing together. We didn't put any kind of intellectual thought to it. We just kind of played together and worked together. He was writing, I was writing. And um, I think we respected each other. You know, it's funny you talk about the Stones, the, the Glimmer Twins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's our drummer, Stan Lance, used to call me and Tom the Dimmer Twins. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, one thing I only just discovered from researching this, going back, all the early pictures of Tom, like in, you know, I don't know if about Mud Crutch, but certainly before then, he was playing bass. That's right. He was a bass player when I yeah. met him. But he was writing songs on acoustic guitar. He was a writer, right. and a, but a bass player, yeah. But then he never picked one up again. Was he any good? He's a great bass player. Right. He bass on the new Mud Crutch stuff. But uh, when we got out to L.A. and started making a record, he was writing a lot of the songs. And I don't think he didn't even have an electric guitar. So I, I let him borrow my Strat and he played that on the first two records and wrote his songs on that. And that was his vibe, you know. So he became a guitar player because he was writing. And then we got someone else to play the bass. But he's got a great feel on the bass. And he had a Hoffner bass back in the day. That's right. Yeah. I've seen pictures of that. Yeah. But it's funny because I get the impression from all the stuff we've seen that you were kind of guitar heads. You like you have a lot of guitars around. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at um, who's oh, your sorry, yeah. Bugs's uh, clubhouse, and uh, I mean, man, would how much would I love to spend some time with those in that room with all those amps and guitars? It's inspiring, you know. But 
we started out with two or three guitars. That's all we had for the first five years. And then as we started making a little bit of money, we'd pass the guitar. We'd be like, oh, I got to have that. I always wanted that. Now I can afford it. You know, and it started, it grew into an obsession over the years. Kind of got yeah. out of control, but. Because uh... I always kind of picture you when I think of my immediate thought, when I think of you two, is it's him with a Telecaster and you with a Rickenbacker. Hmm. Yeah, we weren't really locked into one thing. He played a Strat, my Strat, a lot. Then later on, he turned to a Tele. And, you know, we play whatever we needed, you know, whatever sound we needed to make at the time. You know, we weren't precious about, you, here, you play my guitar, I'll play yours on this song. You know? I'm just yeah. interested in that moment, uh, Mike, when you decide to go from, you know, you're in a band called Mud Crutch, you know, which is, and I saw some photographs and they're quite glam rock looking at times. But <laughs> to suddenly come out on that first album and say, do you know what, Tom's name's going first. We're not just the Heartbreakers. That's a massive leap. Do you remember that conversation? I do. And it made perfect sense. It was Cordell, Denny Cordell. Mud Crutch had fallen apart in the studio because we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And so they were going to keep Tom on as an artist on Shelter Records. And Tom wanted me. Tom insisted, well, I'll stay with you, but you got to keep Mike and Ben Mott, you know, in the fold. And so he was writing the songs and singing the songs. And it just, uh, it made sense to be Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. That's what it was. You know, it wasn't like any put on. And I was very comfortable with it because he's a great leader. You know, and he deserved to have his name up front. Well, you can see that some of the business moves that happened later, some of the kind of brinksmanship yeah. he did with the record company. Also, it's a great name, Tom Petty. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, he's very savvy and very determined and would not let anybody tell him what to do in any record company or anybody. You know, he was very strong that way. And and also with the music, you know, he was just a, he was like, follow me. I know which way to go, you know. Because it's extraordinary because you bet you were this band and you had a deal and then it falls apart and then people are going off to try and do different things. And then you end up all based, essentially, most pretty much all of you coming back together as a band and then and then off it goes. It's an American miracle. <laughs> <laughs> when you say American miracles, I just thought it was quite funny from watching interviews and stuff, how it was it seemed to be two quite posh sounding English guys who had your manager and your record company. Well, we were an English band because we carried ourselves that way. We, as the Heartbreakers started playing, we kind of, you know, we went to London early on and we got some clothes and some boots. And mm -hmm. uh, we just kind of, people thought we, we had an English tour manager and he would introduce the band with the English accent. And everybody assumed that we were all English, you know. And you had Danny Cordell producing you, who, you know, who had produced the Moody Blues and the Move and, and was a real sort of 60s English producer. Yeah. Procol Harum, Whiter Shade of Pale. Denny wow. was really important for us. He was a great guru for Tom and the band, and he led us in the right direction. And uh, kind of like George Draculius does with the Dirty Knobs, Denny Cordell was like uh, showing us the right way to go, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tom comes up with his song American Girl on that first album. The first album doesn't do very well in the States. The single doesn't do very well. It's still to this day seen as your biggest anthem, you know, yeah. and... And I read just recently that it was the last song that you played on stage with Tom. It's an incredible story in that song alone, the journey of your band. It is. There's something magical about that song. And I knew it the first time I heard it. I think that's when Tom really became a writer, you know, a head and shoulders above other writers. That song is so well crafted and the, mm. the uh, lyrics and the music and the character in that song, it holds up, you know, and, I still love playing that song. Sometimes we do it with my band 
just because it's just an adrenaline rush. You know, there's something magical about it that is uh, uplifting, you know, and hopeful and re- has redemption somehow. It feels like, you know, things are going to be okay. You know, it's yeah, uplifting. Yeah. Is that guitar line yours? That ring? Because that's a, a just that's yeah. one of the all time great sort of little riffs. That, well, had, along with also I, the breakdown riff, which is just. Well, breakdown, yeah. That, I, I came up with all those things. He would come and the chord structure and the lyrics and the melody, and then we all start playing along, and I'd make up my stuff, and Ben would make up his, and it became a band sound, you know. But it was nice, because as a lead player, you were very much, it sounds to me, very influenced by kind of early George Harrison, and that it's like it's not an inch of fat. It's get in, do do something that really, really adds something to the song, and get out. And that's the type of songs he was writing. You know, he wasn't writing Mm -hmm. the type that required guitar showmanship, and like I said before, the stuff I grew up on, the Kings, the Beatles, the Stones, that's the mm-hmm. way those guitar parts were. That's the way I thought guitars yeah. would be. Now, when Jimi Hendrix came along, I loved that too. And I can I can do that. I can go in that direction. But the Heartbreaker songs, you know, didn't seem to lean that way. And so uh, it was a it was a marriage made in heaven for me and Tom because we heard things the same way, you know. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of sound of music that isn't very British that is also in the music, which is this sort of heartland rock sound that, you know, obviously Bruce and Jay Giles band and, you know, we know that music. Where is the roots of that? And how does that fit into the British sound? Well, we're way different than uh, the Springsteen and that because we're from the South. You know, we grew up in Florida. There's a lot of great blues and country music on the radio when we were growing up, you know, like Helen Wolf, Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, Bo Diddley, and of course Elvis and uh, Johnny Cash, all that kind of stuff was Southern influenced. And there's a cadence in the way Southerners talk and a little bit of the accent and the delivery that is kind of special to us, I think, because we grew up around that. And then you put that with the British thing and it, it kind of mixes together. That's kind of what we were. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose Heartland, a lot of that is really just, it's about the lyrics too. It's about storytelling of working class people, isn't it? Yeah. Right. It's the personality of where the singer's coming from and the delivery. You know, if you deliver it with a slang and it ha- has a thing on it, you know, that whatever that guy is, you get inside him. And a lot of them are, you know, Southern influence because that's the people we grew up around. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss this episode of rock on tours is sponsored by ag1 the daily nutrition supplement ag1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria antioxidants and much more 
Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. It was obviously totally full on with the heartbreakers for quite a while. When did you start looking left or right to kind of work with other people? Did that start with Stevie? Well, it's like Sammy Cohen's great quote, like, what comes first, the words or the music? It's the phone call. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm one of the most blessed people on earth, really. I've just had things come my way, you know. A lot of the people that I grew up uh, worshipping musically, I've actually met them and played with them, and they told me they liked me, which is just mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. you know? yeah. I've been very fortunate that way, and I did not go out and try to establish a solo career or seek out Johnny Cash or Roy Orbison. They just seemed to show up at my house. Or Bob Dylan, Stevie Nicks. <laughs> destiny i guess i suppose one of the one of the people that ch- that helped to change things for you was jimmy Iovine, though wasn't he because i think going into that album that particular time and, and working with jimmy you know it'd come off you know such great records like you know the the, the patty yeah. smith record at easter you know and giving you a sound a production that was so clean and powerful yeah how was it your relationship with him oh i had and still have a great relationship with jimmy he's a beautiful uh, person we sought him out because we liked the sound of the patty smith record we'd heard that we thought you know we could get a better sound in our band you know a little punchier a little more clear like you said so if we get him he can make us sound better you know he brought his engineer shelly yakis along and i tell you what though it was hard getting those sounds you know, I, I don't make records like that anymore, but we got really meticulous with every little nuance of this part of the snare drums tuned to C sharp, the bottom head's tuned to E flat, and we put the mic over. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, it kind of drove me nuts really making those records with him because they were so scientific. And sometimes it was hard to, to find the fun in the middle of all that process. More craft than art. That sound, it worked for that time. I don't think I'd want to make records that sound like that now because I've moved on to a different vibe but it was a, a good time to make those records and he was perfect for that job yeah it was the million dollar yeah. snare drum sound wasn't it It was all about the snare yeah yeah days <laughs> days and days spent on a snare which actually which you kept basically until Jeff Lynn came into the picture and then Jeff kind of redefined drums didn't he that big boxy roomy sound yeah Jeff is a whole different type producer but he in a lot of ways he's my favorite producer you've ever worked with he makes it fun it's fast he gets excuse me he gets shit done really quick mm-hmm. he knows what he's doing he's got so many ideas he's a musician see jimmy ivy is not a 
fishing. He's coming from a producer point of view who doesn't play. Jeff can play any instrument you put in his hands. He can sing. He can write. He can get sounds. You know, he was just a joy to work with and completely different. He doesn't like to have the whole band playing at once. He doesn't work that way, oh, that's which works really good for his approach in certain songs. Like I won't back down and free falling his production on those songs made the songs great. Yeah. You know? I've got to say free falling is another one. That's another one of my all time. I had a girlfriend who lived in Encino when that came out. and that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, okay, we don't want to go there, right? It was about her, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Mike, the other thing that Jeff's famous for is he hates reverb, right? Yeah, he took our reverbs away. <laughs> <laughs> Did he? <laughs> Sir, he took our reverbs away. <laughs> he did, but he would get a sound in the room on the bike, which had a little room to it. And it forced Tom to really, uh, you know, hear every nuance of his voice and sing that way, you know, kind of bare and naked and not lean back in the reverb. So in a lot of ways, it was good for us. Yeah. Well, I, just a little bit interested. And I think after talking to you, even for this short amount of time, I can see what a generous guy you are. But I'm just interested to know how it felt to have, you know, you had a writing relationship with Tom and you were the definitely the, you know, the guitar player, right-hand man. And then Jeff comes in, he's another guitar player, and he's writing a lot with Tom. Did that feel like another <laughs> woman, if you know what I'm saying, Mike? Uh, I know what you're saying. Uh, I don't ever remember feeling any kind of jealousy. I was just happy to be in the room, you know, and uh, the stuff was, was coming in so good. I mean, I did end up getting some co-writes um, with them. But no, you know, it's like a breath of fresh air for both of us, you know, bring in some new energy. And, you know, it's interesting with Jeff, we would start a track in the afternoon and by 6 p.m. the record was done. All background vocal, solo, harmonies, wow. vocal, he just gets it done. But I found out early in the process that you better have some ideas in your pocket because we cut a track one day and, uh, we needed to put a guitar on it. So next day we came in and he said, so, well, Mike, have you got any ideas? And I'm used to just, we'll run the tape mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll fall into something. But no, not, not off the top. He said, well, I do. <laughs> and he'd been up all night working the car part, right? And it was great. So <laughs> I learned real fast that if I want to get a record, I better just say, yeah, I got something right here. You know? From then on, I had something ready to go. You know, I did my homework. <laughs> And that heat is horrible, isn't it? I can imagine what that feels like when all the eyes are on you. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit like poor George Harrison in the in the Get Back film when you can see that Paul isn't happy with what he's playing, and he's but he's just really under pressure because the cameras are on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. George is a wonderful guy, you know. It, on the song "Handle with Care," oh, yeah. George liked me for some. He he just really liked me, and he was real kind to me. They called me down to the session. They hadn't put the slide guitar on "Handle with Care" yet. And they wanted me to play on it, you know, because uh, they were just generous that way. So I went down there and, you know, there's Jeff Lynn and George Harrison, who I didn't know that well yet. And I'm pretty intimidated. And I got my amp guitar and they ran the track and I was playing, but I was kind of like a little bit frozen up because that's a Beatles sitting there, you know? Yeah. And so finally, Jeff said, no, that's pretty good what you did. And I said, no, it's not right. I said, what I hear on here is George playing the slide because it, it's his. It's George Harrison. <laughs> if he plays it, it'd be better than what I'm doing. 
So he took my guitar with my sound and played that beautiful slide solo. But that's an instance where I was just, you know, intimidated by the presence in the room. It does happen sometimes, you know. I think you as a guitar player, it's very interesting guy because I think, you know, we can all see as, and as a guitarist, I, we can all see how amazing what your chops are and what you do, but you serve the song. It's never like, well, hang on, here's my spotlight. <laughs> I've always felt that what you do is about what's the melody we need for this intro? What, what does this song need to feel in the instrumental section? Right. Some of that's luck and it's just instincts. You know, I listen really close to the vocal when I'm trying to think of a guitar line. I'll sit back while they're working on the vocal or getting the sound and they keep playing the track. I'll sit in the back of the room and just listen, you know, and I'll listen to the melody of the vocal. And then I'll start to sing in my head, well, the, the guitar played that melody. Where would I play it on the neck? And how could I phrase it to sound like the voice? And that's how I approach it. And I think that's how a lot of those songs in the 60s were done, too. And if you're creating a guitar part to a track and over chords that's similar to the vocal line, which works, it's going to work. You know, it, too far away from that spirit or that melody you might take the song into the wrong direction. So that's all I could say about it is you just wait for it to come to you. And sometimes it's just when you're not thinking about it, you're just noodling along and you go, oh, that was good. You know, what was that? Play that back to me. Let me learn that and make that a bit for the song. So you're listening and editing yourself and just, uh, you know, trying not to analyze too much and let it come through you and stay in the voice. Be like another guy. Like if you were the other singer singing for this guy, what notes would you play? What would you sing? And that's what I tend to do. And that seems to help me. And if I get stuck and I can't think of anything, I go to Chuck Berry. (laughs) (laughs) That's sound advice for any, that's very good advice. With the heartbreakers you had, you basically had two personnel changes over a period of God knows how many years, you know, one of which was major, which, you know, when Steve Ferroni turned up also i heard a story this is a real bit of trivia but i remember some american musician years ago telling me the story about your original bass player ron blair when he left the band or or whatever happened and he went and started a bikini shop but apparently that was actually always the plan he was actually only in the band in order to get himself a bikini shop (laughs) (laughs) it's not simple No. no okay it's not that simple yeah 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 but steve ferroni obviously you met on the on the wildflowers album and uh you know him don't you i'm very honored to say that steve ferroni and myself are the rhythm section on earth song by michael jackson well done (laughs) i sat in for a george harrison uh concert and steve was the drummer on that date at albert hall and we immediately became friends so i suggested him to tom when we were looking for someone to do that record and he came in and kind of blew away all the competition pretty quick. Yeah. Well, what, what is that song we were talking yeah, about? What is that song on Wildflowers? Um, I think it might have been the first thing he played. Gary, can you remember? Uh, yeah, it's, you, you, don't, you don't know how it and feels. It's, just, it's beautiful. It's like a Bonham thing and it just doesn't move. And it's so completely different to anything yeah. we've heard, you know, from you guys before. And it's fantastic. The very played on was a song called Hard On Me. And I think the second song he played on was You Wreck Me. And then later on, uh, we were trying to, quote, unquote, make a hit. (laughs) We did. You don't know how it feels. Mm. But, yeah, it's very, it's that beat is very bottom, very simple. Mm. The thing with Steve is he comes from a jazz background, and he had to really dumb it down to play with us. 
You know, don't play any for well, that average white band. I mean, come on. We didn't want that. We looked, we said, Steve, well, you got a great time, but we don't want any of those fiddly bits. You know, keep it simple. Hold a beat down for us. You know, don't play and be one fill in the whole song and we'll be happy. <laughs> but how does the solo stuff work with Tom? Because it was basically the Heartbreakers in, as the backing band, minus the drummer, I think, wasn't it? And did it feel like at any point in that album with Rick Rubin that you guys made? Did it feel like, you know, maybe we should just be calling this Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers? Was it a different room to be in? I don't remember it that ever being a discussion. I remember we wanted to work with Rick Rubin. We didn't even know if it was a solo record or a band record. We were at that point, we were at a point where the band was a little burned out on each other. And Tom got some songs. We came in with Rick, brought some players in. And then we looked up, you know, a few weeks later and there was five songs there and the Heartbreakers weren't on them. So we said, well, I guess this is going to be a solo record. You know? So it was organically just turned into that. It was, there was no great plan or anything. How did you find the switch to Rick? Because Rick really is about stone cold, in your face, kind of stripped down authenticity in the music, isn't he? That, is, that seems to be his M.O. Yeah. And also, you know, getting a band playing at the same time, which we did not do with Jeff. Mm -mm. And I love uh, doing records the way Jeff does them, too. But after a couple of those, we thought it'd be nice, you know, maybe to go back and, and cut some tracks with chemistry and interplay and live. And we thought Rick would be good for that. And he was. And so all the tracks on that record are uh, live performances with the players, not built up one piece at a time. And was that at your house? A lot of it was recorded here. Yeah, I have a state-of-the-art studio where I've done the Dirty Knobs records. And it's a Neve console. This is great. We've done some Heartbreaker stuff here, a lot of overdubs, a little bit of tracking over the years. It's not the biggest studio to have eight guys hanging around, but if it's only four, it works out fine. <laughs> you had the lovely Michael yes. Kamen on that album yeah. too, who Guy and I both was were my neighbor. With, yeah, uh, and Steve McLaughlin, we saw his fabulous engineer. But doing all the yeah. orchestration, Michael. Yeah. Michael Kamen was a genius. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Amazing man. One of the most charismatic yeah. men to ever live, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. We had Dave Stewart on the show as well. He was talking about writing that song with Tom. You, you know, these English guys coming in and sort of like, they that never bothers you, Mike. No, I was, I was inspired by them. You know, we're going to like them right off the bat, you know, because they're English and we're not. But uh, I like working with Dave Stewart, too. And uh, a lot of the, the Dave Stewart stuff ended up being with full band overdubbed here and there. Sometimes we tracked a couple of songs I think he built up from a drum machine. But um, it's just whatever's happening that day, you know, but I was never you know, challenged or intimidated by it. I just wanted to be part of the team and learn and, and contribute. How was it writing with Dylan? I've, I mean, I can't imagine how any how anyone could sit in a room with Bob Dylan and try and share a song with him. I didn't. I had the, you talk about this song, Jamming Me. Yeah. Ian, Tom and Bob. I never sat with Bob and wrote a song. <laughs> right. Music, I gave it to Tom and he went over to uh, Bob's hotel one day and they had the newspaper out and he played him my track and they sang stuff out of the newspaper over the track, gave him some lyrics. So I never actually sat with Bob and wrote that song. When you toured with him, the Heartbreakers were the band, right? You were his band. Does that mean you were doing both sets? You were playing a full Heartbreaker set and then being his band? Well, it was a half Heartbreaker set. We do... Uh, it would be exhausting. <laughs> you know, we were young. Yeah. We loved it. We were playing with Bob Dylan. We were excited. You were the band. But we would... The Heartbreakers would do a 30-minute set and we'd take a little break and go out with Bob for about an 
I don't know, an hour. And then we would leave and he would do his, his solo thing, which was always just brilliant. And then we would come back on and end the show with him. All right. So, and someone, someone shouts Judas from the audience. <laughs> but uh, yeah, playing with Bob was uh, a thrill. Live, he's famously obtuse, isn't he? And sort of trips up the band and stuff. Or was it not like that with you? Well, not to hear him say it, no. <laughs> <laughs> he's in the moment, you know, he's, it's almost a little bit like a beautiful anarchy in a way. Because uh, during the show, if we're coming up to the song on the set list he may not want to do that song or he might want to do it but he might decide I, he feels it as a waltz tonight and so he'll start playing and the band will go what's oh it's not used to go like that now it goes like this <laughs> and we got pretty good at it. it was really a challenge for us but it was so different than the heartbreakers who were like you know you play by the script and you build a set and you get an arc and you know and please the audience and bob was just kind of like hey i'm just gonna i'm i'm going to do what I want to do and I hope you like it. <laughs> well, I don't know about I hope you like it. Even I mean, I, I've seen Dylan shows where I couldn't tell what song he was singing until he sang the title. <laughs> yeah. That's au contraire, Mr. Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess, Mike, if, if in doubt, just play Chuck Berry, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's a beautiful artist and uh, probably my favourite writer. If I had to pick one, it would be him. Well, you can hear it. And I was talking about, you know, you know, where that American Heartland stuff came from and that, you know, we've been talking about inspiration and influences. And of course, in Tom's voice, especially, you can, you can hear Dylan, can't you? It's, uh, he's, he started all. Yeah. I saw that last London show you did at uh, Hyde Park, mm. which was absolutely fantastic. Thank you. And I, I just, I don't know how much you want to say about that time when, you know, you, you got the call about Tom and how it, how the band and the Heartbreakers dealt with all of that. Well, it's how do you deal with the death in the family? I'm still grieving and I probably always grieve, but um, I'm getting past the, uh, the hollow empty grieving into more of a grateful type of grieving where I hear the songs and I think of him and I have dreams about him sometimes that are beautiful. I have great memories and I hold on to those. And uh, I always kind of feel like he's sitting next to me in a way because we were so close. And uh, if I'm doing anything and I'm, not, well, I don't know why I should do it. It's almost like I go, hey, what would you do? And he kind of leads me, you know. It sounds kind of corny, but no. it, we were really close, you know. And, uh, you know, it was a, it was a mishap that he's, he should still be here, but it was just an accidental thing that happened. And, uh, it kind of shook our world quite strongly, you know, and uh, I don't think you ever get over something like that, you know, but uh, you have to carry on yeah, and keep making music, you know? Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, someone who's so full of uh, creative juice and life for them to be taken away so soon is, you know, that's so shocking. Aside from being in a band, we were brothers, you know, we were really close yeah. friends. And uh, I think what I missed the most, I missed the music, but I also just missed the phone calls. You know, we just talk on the phone and he was so funny and a great conversationalist and very smart. And I really missed those conversations. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, because some of his writing, could be, I mean, um, <laughs> I was with a girl on LSD. <laughs> I mean, that's that's almost like the Bonzo Dog Doodah band or something. It's it's so funny well, that's like you know he could make that shit up on the spot yeah that song was just on the spot you know he started playing he started making up the words putting the rhyme together as he went and 
I would see him do that. It would just amaze me, you know, how he would just make up lyrics right on the spot and they would rhyme and make sense. And, you know, he was a great, uh, a great talent. Thank God we got to make all that music, that music will live forever. You know? Oh yeah. Uh, and how, how's, how's Benmont Tench? What's he up to now? He has a solo record about to come out on dark horse records. I just heard he signed with them and he's got a new child and a little daughter and he loves her. He's been staying home with her a lot. I saw him recently. We did a little interview together and he's happy. What I loved about your sound and you can hear it all the way through the heartbreakers is that the voicing between your guitar and Benmont's Hammond Mm -hmm. piano, it's it, especially the Hammond, I think, has this incredible chorus cadence that goes on. It's really symbiotic. Yeah, ain't we something? <laughs> you are. I mean, is that something you sat and work out all the time? Is he really good at just tuning in? It's something we instinctively knew how to stay out of each other's way. And if he's playing a certain thing, I know, well, if I play up here, it'll fit with that mm-hmm. or vice versa. But we never talked about it. It's just that's the way we, that's the sound we make together, you know. Okay. Um, Fleetwood Mac? Yeah, I saw that to us <laughs> too. How, yeah. would, how did that feel, you being on stage taking over? But mind you, you're with another amazing songwriter there, Neil Finn. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. come on. He's, you know. Come on, exactly. I mean, like I said before. Things just come my way. <laughs> yeah, you're doing all the Lindsay Buckingham parts. I mean, it, yeah. was, it right. was pretty tough. It, it was a challenge, but it was uh, it was good for me, you know, because I'm not used to doing that. I'm used to playing my own parts. But I agreed to do the gig, and I love those records. I have nothing but the greatest respect for Lindsay. My job was to try to make those songs sound as close to the record as I could. So I had to get in there and do a little woodshedding, you know, and... Uh, it's a muscle that I don't normally use, but uh, I enjoyed it, you know, and, and his parts are so good. I tried to learn them the best I could and bring them to the band so that when people heard the song, they would recognize it, you know, and that was my job. I heard you say in an interview how, and, and I know this exactly, that thing of when someone's done a part, which to them is just a throwaway thing that they've come up with. Those are actually the hardest things to learn. <laughs> exactly. Like on Boys of Summer. You know, when I did all those little guitar bits, da 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 all that stuff in throughout, it was one pass off the top of my head. And then we had to go in and make the record. I had to go back and learn those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I didn't know what I did. So it's, it's hard. It was the same thing with Lindsay's stuff. Or even if the Heartbreakers would do a cover, like an old Bo Diddley song or whatever it might be, or the Zombies, I tried to get into that guitar player's head and, and try to learn what did he do and how did he do it. So with Fleetwood Mac, it was the same sort of thing. I would just listen really closely and study them the best I could and uh, play them well. And the tour was really good. It was sold out everywhere, went around the world, had a blast, a lot of days off for tooling around and uh, great people. The rhythm Mm -hmm. section, I mean, every day they're standing behind me. So I was just like a kid in a candy store. We had Mick on the show. He's he's such a great guy. Yeah. Oh yeah. What a and guy. he was very emotional at the end of uh, our chat. He was he yeah. was saying, "I just want to get back up on stage one more time with the band." You know. I know. I think John would probably be just happy just to keep staying on a sailboat. You know, and uh, <laughs> yeah. Chris likes you know taking care of her garden in England, and Stevie wants to do some of her own touring. So Mick might have to wait for that. <laughs> Are you still working with Stevie? Uh, I. 
am not working with her at the moment, but I'm in touch with her. We're really dear friends and uh, she's uh, doing well. We check in on each other from time to time. She did a great single with uh, with Dave Stewart, actually, just the uh, last single that came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, Stevie's wonderful. I love her. So are, we, are you coming to the UK with the Dirty Knobs? I hope so. It won't be this year. We're starting from the bottom, guys. We're starting from the bottom. We're going to work our way back up through the ranks. <laughs> and hopefully we'll get successful enough that we can afford to uh, book a tour over there. I'd love to come back with this band and play all over Europe, but certainly England and Ireland. I love it there. So, Yeah, well, you know, so we found you first. I'm sure we'll, we'd love to find you yeah. all over again. <laughs> this year's a test to see how we do here. And it looks like we're going to do pretty well. So if things pick up a little bit, we can get the economics together. We'll be over there. I mean, I want to go for sure. Yeah. Guy and I play with Nick Mason from Pink Floyd. We play in his band. Oh. And we have been putting off our tours for the last... I think nearly three years now, guys, isn't it? Like two and a half years. It's, well, it's going to be two years since our first cancellation. We had to cancel the American tour when all the gear was already on a oh, ship. God. It's been hard on everybody, yeah. but I do start, I think I'm starting to see, I don't want to jinx it, knock on wood. I think I see a little light at the end of this tunnel. Yeah, no, I, th I think yeah. so. Yeah. Mike, it's been such a pleasure to have you on our show. And you, thank you. Very, yeah, really. very insightful questions. And, uh, we wish you luck with the new album. Oh, thank you. I think we can use it. Especially <laughs> if Ian Hunter's on it. That's great. It sounds great. It's going to be fun it. live. Yeah, I think people will be surprised. It's a, it's a great little band. We rock. All right, man. You too. Thank you so All much, right. Mike. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very, very much, Mike. Really great to have you. He takes it all in his stride. Bob Dylan... He does take it all in his stride well, while smoking, smoking a, pipe, a pipe. Which was wonderfully Spinal Tap. I loved it. It was a really ornate pipe for those of you who couldn't <laughs> see it. But I always I like that thing of just feeling just lucky, you know, that it all just kind of seemed to came his way. And it, But, it, you know, it, it came his way for a reason. Yeah, yeah, that's right, of course. And, you know, he's the sort of go-to guy for so many people who want that American sound. I mean, he talks about it being British, but that sound, the thing he does. But it's funny, but there's, in a way that, you know, that original British sound came from guys trying to do an American thing, and then it went back to, to America, and then you had these Americans trying to sell it back to the British, this British thing. And now you have guys who have sort of, it's now five generations removed where he now is this American guy who has that American version of a yeah. British thing, which yeah. everyone... Yeah, there'll be a map of that comment we'll put on social yeah, media exactly. at some point. There's a, a little, few little cross-reference uh, ones you can go back on our pod. You can go back and listen to the Dave Stewart one. He talks about Tom Petty a lot there. And the Justin Haywood podcast where he talks about Denny Cordell. Yeah, and of course, Shell Tell Me, but just for, for the reference. But also, if you just look at his Wikipedia page, there is a, just a ton of stuff we couldn't get to this. There are so many collaborations. Yeah. It's incredible. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another giant. Yes, they'll be at least 11 feet tall. Until then, it's good night from me. And good night from him. I want you to know I heard every word. <laughs> oh, no, he heard that. You heard that. <laughs> I thought I signed off and I heard you guys talking so I know what are these guys going to say about me first you were kind <laughs> yeah. we're all good okay bye well we're all going now as well so we're going to sign off here yeah so, we're, we're all off so, mate we're all off we're going to go speak later bye <laughs>
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.